We welcome you this Lord's Day as we worship together. The Lord calls us to worship from Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Please turn with me in the holy word of God to the gospel of Matthew. The gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, and we're going to be reading from uh, verse 13 uh, to the end of the chapter. Matthew 16, verses 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that, that, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So far, the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Please turn with me in your Psalters to Lord's Day 49 in the back of your Psalter. It can be found on page 85. Lord's Day 49. 
Question 124, which is the third petition? Answer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may renounce our own will and without murmuring obey thy will, which is only good, that so everyone may attend to and perform the duties of his station and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels do in heaven. We pray this petition often, asking the Lord to accomplish His will. And as Christians, we're comforted. We're comforted knowing that God will accomplish everything that He has planned. Both His secret will and His revealed will will happen. It will occur. And God's revealed to us many things that will happen. He's revealed to us many things that that will occur. We know his kingdom will come. We'll know that he will save all the elect. We know judgment day is coming. That Jesus will return. We know he's coming. He will return to exercise his judgment upon the earth. And we pray this petition often. But when we pray this petition, we're not only praying that God's will will be accomplished. That God's sovereign plan would happen. But also when we pray this, we're praying that our will would be conformed to God's will. The Heidelberg Catechism and and also the Westminster Larger Catechism makes it abundantly clear that this petition also has to do with our will. When we pray this petition, we are praying that our wills will be conformed to God's will. And we need God to change us. We need God to change us For we know that we've taken on a heart and a will that is set against God. Sin and hatred has by nature overtaken each of us. Every part of us is set against God and we will not change unless the miracle of regeneration and faith takes place in us. The Heidelberg Catechism here tells us that we need to renounce our own will and obey God's will. But this, by nature, is something that we refuse to do. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 192, gives a little bit more of a a precise, looks at this more precisely. There it says, they say there, what do we pray for in the third petition? And the answer is, in the third petition, which is, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, acknowledging that by nature we and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, but prone to rebel against his word, to repine and murmur against his providence, and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil, We pray that God would, by His Spirit, take 
from ourselves and others all blindness, wickedness, indisposedness, and perverseness of heart. And by his grace, make us able and willing to know, do, and submit to his will in all things. With the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy as the angels do in heaven. Scripture and these creeds make it very clear that we're on able, utterly unable, utterly unwilling to know and do the will of God, yet God calls us to do us to do this. That we will only do the will of our flesh and of the devil. So when we pray this, when we pray this thy will be done, we're praying, yes, that God's will on earth would occur. But we're also praying that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes, that He'd give us new hearts. And by His grace, make us able and willing to know, do, and submit to His will in all things. And the first thing for this to happen The first thing for us to be able to submit to God's will, for us to do God's will, is that we must be born again. We need to be changed so that we can begin to obey God's will. But in order for this to happen, in order for us to be born again, it was also essential that Jesus Christ obeyed the will of God. And it was his obedience to the plan and the will of the Father. It was him obeying the will of God that makes us makes it possible for us to be conformed to the will of God. And that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. We're going to be looking at the connection between God's will in Christ's life and God's will in our lives. Our sermon is, is simply titled, God's Will for Humanity. First of all, it's God's will for the perfect human. And secondly, it's God's will for sinful humanity. Now I want to read again the verses here in, 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 in Matthew 16. I want to read Matthew sixteen twenty one through 27. From this time forth, Jesus began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and shall lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. When Jesus came into the world, he came to do the Father's will. He says in Hebrews, then said I, and he's quoting from the Psalms here, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. This was the purpose of Jesus' life. He became man to accomplish his Father's will. And the Lord's will, the Father's will, was that the Son should humble himself, that the Son should become like his creation, that he should take on human flesh and experience life in this fallen world. And so the creator God of everything agreed, the son agreed, he volunteered to take on flesh in order to carry out the will of his father. And the father's will for his son is that his son would save his people from their sins. And Jesus comes here and he comes to his disciples and He's going to reveal this to them. This precious truth. He's going to tell them his purpose here. His purpose here in the world. Verse 21 of our text says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Jesus knows here. He knows what the will of the Father was for him. He knew that he needed to go through with this. He was determined to accomplish God's will. And if we look at Jesus, we know he was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. His will was perfectly aligned with the Father's will. His will and desire cooperated perfectly together. Though Jesus was like us in every way, he did not sin. He never exclaimed as Paul, for the good that I would not, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. Here is Jesus, the perfect man, created perfect, unfallen, righteous, and unable to sin. And yet he chose to come into this world. He humbled himself. His father's will for him in this world was one of temptation, one of suffering, one of of pain. And Jesus did not enjoy it. It was not pleasurable. But he did it. He did it because it was his sovereign will to glorify God And to save his people. God called him to suffer and to experience the brutal death on the cross. And Jesus, he lived a life of sorrow and grief. He was afflicted and wounded. He endured the reproach and mocking of of sinful men. This was the life 
that he was called to live. There was no other option for him. This was the road that he needed to travel. As a man, he would prefer not to experience the pain and suffering. But his desire for the Father's glory, his desire for the salvation of his people, overrode his desire to avoid suffering and death. We see this already early in in his life when he says, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. His desire to follow the Father's will, as well as his aversion to his suffering and death, is, is strongly expressed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus is saying here to the Father, if it is your will that I don't have to experience your wrath and rejection, if I don't have to experience the pain and suffering of death, so let it be. But if this is the way that I must go, if this is your will, so I will do it. And Jesus told his disciples this. He told them what was awaiting him. And when Jesus told his disciples, Peter Our text tells us, did not take it well. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter heard what Jesus said, and it was completely contrary to Peter's understanding and desire. Here Peter, did he didn't agree with God's will. It was a foreign idea to him that the way to bring the good was by walking through the bad. No doubt, we know Peter loved Jesus. He cared for him. He he wanted to see Jesus gain favor and power and and be a proper king king in Israel. But Peter's idea of success was the worldly idea of success. Riches, influence, power. He expected God's will for Jesus to be this. And Peter had just proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. He had just proclaimed that he's the son of the living God. And this is true. But his expectations for the king of kings was not the will of God. His expectations were a spectacular and glorious kingdom on earth. And if you look at your text, what Peter's actually doing here is he's offended at Jesus for saying this. He even rebukes him and and he uses very strong language. He says, be it far from you. Now this translation uh, doesn't really catch the full meaning of of how strong Peter's language is here. To put it other way, in other words, Peter could be saying here, God forbid or mercy forbid, this shall not ever happen to you. There's two negatives here also in the, in the Greek. He's like, this shall not ever happen to you. 
to Peter. It just could not be God's will that his son would have to endure suffering. In his mind, this is not the way it's supposed to happen. This isn't what the Messiah is supposed to go through. There should be a coronation. There should be the rising up of a great kingdom that's going to rule on this earth. But then we see Jesus' reaction here. His reaction to Peter is immediate. He turns immediately to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter here is thinking in a worldly manner. He thought maybe his act of chastisement, that it was a pious act. But it was actually being used by Satan to tempt Jesus. And and Jesus recognized this. And therefore he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense, or actually thou art a stumbling block unto me. Jesus is being tempted here. He's being tempted to take an easier route. To accept and embrace what the flesh naturally desires, the road of ease and comfort. It's similar to the temptation that he received in the wilderness. All these things will I give thee, If thou wilt fall down and worship me. This temptation offers an easy way out. Why go through all the suffering? Why die on the cross? This is not the world's idea of victory. This isn't the way for a king to succeed. And this is tempting to Jesus. Yes, it is impossible that he would fall to temptation. But avoiding sin and suffering is still appealing to him. This is not a minor temptation, but it's one that is a real temptation to Jesus. And this is why Jesus reacts so strongly and he calls Peter Satan. Jesus is so committed to God's will that he immediately recognizes this temptation for what it is. Rejects it. He rebukes Peter and steadfastly remains on the course to Jerusalem and the cross. The way of ease is attractive to the flesh. And Jesus knows, though, that the way of ease here is the way of disaster. His desire is to accomplish the will of God. To live according to his father's will. He desires to be faithful to his father. To finish what he set out to do. To finish the course. To ascend again to the father. And to sit on his heavenly throne in glory. And Jesus knows. He understands that the way to to inaugurate the kingdom. The way for his kingdom to come. The way for him to sit on his heavenly throne. Is through this suffering, through this road of suffering and death on the cross. 
This is God's will for Jesus' life. A way of suffering that leads to glorification. A way of death that leads to eternal life for all his people. All the saints that came before him and all the saints that will come after are depending on him to walk this dreadful road. And if he doesn't go this way, if he he doesn't suffer and die, not one sin can be forgiven. All the symbolism of the Old Testament that pointed to the washing away of sin, the sacrifice, the sacrifices, the blood, the baptisms of repentance, it all proves to be a lie. If Jesus doesn't walk this road, not one person from Adam to John the Baptist would gain eternal life. If Jesus does not carry his cross, there will be no resurrection. There will be no victory. And there will be no crown of glory for him. The way of ease, the way of not following God's will leads to defeat. It leads to the condemnation of every single person. And therefore, as we consider this, therefore praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ that he could not and would not fall to temptation, that he persevered to live out the Father's will for him, Praise the Lord that he would secure the forgiveness of his people's sin. That he would secure eternal glory for them. And that he himself would rise from the dead, ascend into heaven. And to sit on his throne as king forever. But there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here for us as we look at Christ's will. As we look at the Father's will for the Son. God's will for Jesus reflects his will for his people as well. We are called to be imitators of Christ. And Jesus knows this. And and this is why what happens here. He's drawing on, on what happens in verses 21 through 23. When he calls his disciples in verses 24 through 27 to follow him. Right after revealing what he's called to do, what he's called to do, he tells his disciples what they are called to do. He says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, many of us struggle. We struggle with God's will. We want to know what God wants us to do, what his plan is for our life. We ask questions like, where is God calling me to go to school? Where is God calling me to work? Is God calling me to marriage or singleness? Who is God calling me to marry? Is God calling me to, be, to the ministry, to the mission field, or to be a faithful servant in his church. These are questions that you in particular young people are, are always asking. These are, are good questions. It's good to ask what is God's will for my life. We all need to be praying this. Asking 
and young men asking the Lord if you're called to the ministry. We should be asking the Lord what he's calling us to do. But can we take this a little bit overboard sometimes? Wanting God to perhaps miraculously reveal to us exactly what we should be doing, exactly what career we should be pursuing, exactly whom we should be marrying, which house we should buy. I'm not saying we don't ask for the Lord's wisdom in making decisions, but neither should we we be totally dependent on an experience to validate our decisions. One writer wrote this, As we seek to know God's will, we often feel tension. In a sincere desire to please him, we can sometimes walk in fear that we will make the wrong choice about the details of our lives. We spin in circles wondering where God wants us to get coffee, how much he wants us to spend on groceries, or whether he'd be happy if we went on a vacation. Every choice becomes a paralyzing decision. Either discover what God wants or make a choice that could ruin everything. For some, obsessing over life's details leads them to make decisions in clearly unbiblical ways, hinging their choices on apparent signs and coincidences. People sometimes will look for a sign, a voice, a feeling, a tingling of the spine as a sign of God's will for their lives. We often want to know his secret will and will even use superstitious means to attempt to gain insight into it. But we're really not permitted to do this. The Lord tells us in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So why do, why do I bring this up about God's will here, talking about superstitious ways? Well, in many ways, God's will for us is simple. He reveals it to us in his word. Very simply, God's will for every one of us is that we would be holy and righteous like him. Now the Lord does get more specific. He does give us more specifics. He gives here, even in our text here, a more detailed outline of the will of God for sinful humanity. God's will for sinful humanity is that we would come after him, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. First, It's the Lord's will that we come after him. This is his will for all humanity. God is calling you, dear sinner, to come after him. This is the revealed will of almighty God, that you would come to him and be saved. There's nothing blocking the way to him, but your own unwillingness to believe the gospel. Perhaps you're questioning whether it's God's will that you come to him. 
Perhaps you're waiting for a sign or a powerful experience to validate the fact that you can come. This is unnecessary. Because God plainly tells us in his word that you can come and that you're welcome to Jesus Christ. It is God's will that you turn and come to Christ. God's will here, God's call here is is a universal call. Notice what he says here. He says, if any man, he doesn't say only godly ones. He doesn't say only religious ones. He doesn't even say only those who are great sinners. He doesn't say only those who have experienced their misery enough. Jesus calls any man, he calls anyone to come to him. There are no restrictions. There's, there's no prerequisites here that one that must be met to come to Jesus. All are welcome. He will save the least to the greatest sinner who flees to him for forgiveness and salvation. So it's God's will that we come to him. It's also God's will that we deny ourselves. The curse of the fall, the curse of sin, causes us to be self-centered, proud people who, who seek our own honor, our own prestige, our own ease, and our own pleasure. But God calls us to deny ourselves. He calls us to love him with our whole heart. He calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. God's will is that we live a life of self-forgetfulness. Now when you first think of this word, when you think about self-denial, maybe you're thinking about an aesthetic or monkish type lifestyle that's associated with works religion. You're thinking of only Denying yourself by only eating certain foods or denying yourself by abusing your body or by abstaining for those things that are are meant to be a blessing from the Lord. But what is meant by denying ourselves is primarily the denying of our old man. The denying of our old man that hates God and does not desire to follow him. One commentator describes what denying yourself looks like in a believer's life. He says, a person who denies himself gives up all reliance on whatever he is by nature and depends for salvation on God alone. He no longer seeks to promote his own predominantly selfish interests, but has become wrapped up in the cause of promoting the glory of God in his and in every life. The denying of self is a refocusing. It's a refocusing from a life being wholly consumed with self to a life dedicated to serving and honoring the Lord in all that we do. And this denial of self also includes taking up our cross. I want you to notice the personal pronoun before cross here. What is meant by this? The personal pronoun is his, his cross. Is this Christ's cross? Are we called to take up Christ's cross, his cross? 
We cannot, of course, bear the weight of this cross. And Christ's road of suffering was his own unique cross to bear. But yet there's a sense in which because of our union with Christ that when we take up our cross, we are taking up his cross. We are called to share in his suffering. We are called to follow in his footsteps. Yet, this his cross is also our personal pronoun. It's, it's our cross. It refers to the fact that each of us has a cross with our name on it. A cross prepared by our Father that belongs to us. This cross has been specially designed by our Father. It fits each Christian perfectly. It's been lovingly crafted by their Father for for them to carry. Each of these crosses look different. They come in different shapes. Some of them are really heavy. Others are lighter. These crosses are a burden. But these crosses are not a curse. They are lovingly given by the Lord to each of his children so that we will be conformed to his will. He gives you this cross to aid you in following Christ. The crosses that we carry, they make us dependent. They cause us to be looking to Jesus, to keep our eyes on him as we travel to glory. The Lord gives us these crosses. He gives them to you, dear Christian, to prepare you for glory, to cause you to grow in grace, to to become more holy. Gives us a cross to reshape us, to reshape our desires so that we would be more conformed to his will. So that we would become like Paul to cry out, to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet I think we can still look at ourselves. Look at ourselves tonight and see that in so many ways we are still like Peter. We desire a life of ease and comfort. I know I don't want difficulties in life. I want my cross to be as light as possible. I don't want trials. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want illness. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to have family conflict. I don't want to be grieved by my sin nor by the sin I see around me. But yet as I I look in Scripture, I I recognize what Scripture says. It very, very plainly states that the life of a Christian will not be an easy life. We are called to suffer. We are called to carry a cross. We are called to lose our life. Now, these are are not things that we should seek out. Some of the early Christians would actively seek out martyrdom. They'd They'd go looking for the persecutor so that they could be arrested and killed. No, no, we should not seek out these things. 
But when we are called to carry a certain cross, when we are called to suffer for Christ's sake, I hope and pray that we may joyfully shoulder our burden. And that this burden would cause us to fix our eyes on our Savior who who has gone before us. Who's now using this very particular cross to prepare us for when we will be with him. When the Lord gives us a cross, he's teaching us also to lose our life. Our text presents us with a paradox. If you try and save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, you will find it. The natural man, we put forth every effort we can to attain the perfect life. We seek to please our old man with the pleasures of the world, the pride of life. A richer, self-focused, happier life. But this life is not God's revealed will for his people. He wants us to lose our life for his sake. To follow after Jesus. To set our minds on the things of God. To give our lives as a living sacrifice for him. Like Christ, we are called to set self aside. Obey God, love our neighbor, and ironically, in doing so, we will find life, peace, and joy in Christ. And we can do this not because we have what it takes to do this, because of what Jesus did. He went before us. He suffered and died for us. He sent his spirit to mold us from within, to change us, to use crosses, so that we will be made willing to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. He does everything. He's done everything for us. So young people, as you make plans for your life, you have a, a choice before you as our text shows here. Do you want to gain the world? Do you want to save your life here? Do you want to gain what the world values, a name for yourself, a comfortable life filled with pleasure, riches, perhaps a life in which you're you're remembered? Or do you wish to lose your life for Christ's sake? There's many books and articles written on this subject. What is God's will for my life? What is God calling me to do? Some authors call us to be as radically radical as we can, to literally give away all we have and go out with the gospel. Others 
call us to just do what the Lord has, has placed in front of us. To be content to be an ordinary Christian, to follow the Lord's everyday, ordinary leading. And yes, as you go forward, ask the Lord to lead you. Perhaps he is calling you to, to lead a radical life. Perhaps he's calling you to lead an ordinary life. But no matter where you are, no matter your age, no matter your occupation, the Lord is calling you to come after him. He's calling you to deny yourself, to take up his cross and to follow him. So lose your life for Christ's sake. Lose your life. And you will find him. You will find the Lord Jesus Christ. And not the world, but he will become your life. He will become your world, your all. He will become your life. And he will give you new life. The last verse of this passage speaks about Jesus coming again. Christ has accomplished God's will for him in this world. He has gained the victory through suffering. And there's one thing he has yet to do. He's coming again on the clouds on judgment day. And our verse here, verse 27 says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels... And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Sometimes we who believe in salvation by faith alone, salvation by grace through faith alone, we have trouble understanding it. We are not saved by our works. We're we're saved by Christ's works because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He has perfectly kept the law for us. Yet our text shows us there will be degrees of glory for the saints, the persecuted, the martyred, those who lost their life for Christ's sake, who lived out God's revealed will for their lives. They'll be greatly rewarded in heaven. But there's a warning here too, a warning to you who are not a Christian. You too will be judged according to your works. You will be judged and found wanting. For you did not go after Christ. You did not pursue him. You did not deny yourself. You did not take up your cross and and follow Jesus. The hundreds of invitations. The light of the gospel that was daily set before you. It will now increase your condemnation. You may have gained the whole world. But now you will lose your soul. Is it worth it? Is the world you're pursuing, is, is, it, is it worth it? And if not, why are you still seeking to gain the world? Why are you still trying to make something of yourself? 
Again, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him. Lose your life and, and find him. Jesus was re rewarded when he accomplished God's will. He's now waiting to perform the final task of his calling. He's anxiously waiting to bring all of his brothers and sisters home to himself. What will happen in the last day is Jesus' reward as well as ours. We anxiously await the day when we will be with Christ. But he too yearns for this day. What a delight when it will be when our journey will finally be done. When we will be together with Christ. Our crosses, these burdens we bore will fall away. Having lost our lives for Christ's sake, we will have gained eternal life with him. We'll be with the king of our life. The king of kings, our bread and water of life. Before I close, I, I just want to address a question that might remain in, in some of your minds. This passage calls us to deny ourselves. This passage calls us to take up our cross, to lose our lives. But what does this practically look like? Spoke a little bit on this already. Does this, does this mean that I need to, to move to the Amazon jungle and, and bring the gospel to a people who have, who have never heard it? Maybe. Does this mean that I should become an engineer or a homemaker or a business owner? That, that could be. Does this mean that I need to sacrifice my time, money, and energy for the gospel's sake? Yes, it, it does. But how your life looks from the outside, where you are, what you're doing, how you're losing your life for Christ, it'll be different from Christian to Christian. But there will be some things that are consistent, some things that are, are the same. When Christians are following the will of God, there will be love and thankfulness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this will be a love that manifests itself in your life. We particularly see it as the manifestation of the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Love for Christ in your neighbor. Joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, and faith. The Holy Spirit will change your heart so these things become evident. But also I want you to pay attention in, in the next few weeks. I think it may extend into months as Pastor Weil goes through the Beatitudes. As he goes through each Beatitude. This is a, a beautiful picture of what living for Christ, living out the will of God in your life looks like. We deny ourselves. We carry our crosses. We lose our life because we have a great Savior who did this for us. 
And this is the life he calls us to as Christians. Yes, it can be a hard life, but it's, it's a wonderful life. A life, yes, of paradoxes, but a life that it is a privilege to live. So in this week, as we go forward, as we carry our crosses, let's do so giving thanks to our glorious Lord who has called us from darkness into his marvelous light, who has called us to come and follow him. Amen. Our faithful and glorious Father in heaven, we thank Thee. We thank Thee, dear Lord, for Thy Word, and we confess we are so much like Peter, desiring to live our lives for ourselves, not willing to be conformed to Thy image, not willing to follow after Thee, but we thank Thee for Thy patience with us. And pray that thy spirit would continue to humbly change us and shape us and mold us to be more and more like thee, O Lord. Be with us in this week. Particularly with those of us who carry heavy crosses. Lord, that these these would be used to direct our eyes of faith to thee. And that thou would strengthen and encourage us in carrying our crosses. And that we would rejoice, rejoice in the fact that we can have a relationship with thee, that we can know thee. And that as believers, we are on a journey to be with thee forever. And so we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.